Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise. With lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Now for the conclusion of the Wisconsin Legends Podcast, Wisconsin UFOs. We fast forward a few years from the mid-1960s to the early 1970s, and things get a little wilder. Yes, if you think Simonton was crazy, this one even gets nuttier. So one of the strangest encounters in the annals of Wisconsin weird history occurred on the night of December 2nd, 1974. Polk County dairy farmer William Bosack was driving home from a farm co-op meeting at approximately 10.30 p.m. on a particularly foggy night. About a mile from his home, he spotted a cylindrical-shaped object hovering in the distance. Bosack slowed down to see if he could identify the object. Above him was an approximate 10-foot-long, 3-foot-wide structure with a brightly illuminated interior. Recalling what he experienced, Bosack stated, I could see a figure with its arms raised above its head. It was a different kind of character than you'd see on the earth. It looked a good deal like a man, but it had a different look on its face than you'd see. It had a kind of cow-looking face. The face was hairless with a beardless chin. It was dressed in tight-fitting garments with the appearance of brown fur. (laughs) It was just as scared as I was. Now, he must have cows on the mind. It it, it feels like it's a far side cartoon. It's like the cows fly in a spaceship. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, we hear about the alien abductions of airy cows, but maybe we caught one in the act and they were actually pulled in these cylinders. (laughs) Right. They abducted dairy cows because they're looking for dates. Somebody needs a hot date with a dairy cow. The encounter was investigated by Wisconsin-based APRO. After conducting extensive interviews with Bosak and his family, they determined that he was honest and forthright with what he encountered. As for the identity of the occupant of the capsule, speculation abounds. A weird race of alien? Intergalactic cow Bigfoot? (laughs) A cow sent to Bosak's farm as a time traveler? Ooh. In a strange twist of fate, William Bosak left this world exactly 22 years later on December 2nd, 1996. So... The date that he saw it was December 2nd, 1974, and Mr. Bosack left this world exactly 22 years later. The cows December, came back to take him home. December 2nd, 1996, his space cow brethren <laughs> took him home. It's absolutely absurd, but again. This is the realm of the Magonian aspect of yes, it. Yes, yes. This the, goes beyond what sounds to us like it makes sense. Exactly. It's so bizarre that it's like, how could this... Or how or why would this farmer, dairy farmer, make this up? And why was it presented to him? That's really the, the crux of the question. The Bosak, the cow humanoid is great. But it's interesting how these kind of things appear. Even to take the airships in 1897, they're appearing to people in a way that they understand. You're just getting the concept of aliens and things. And you think about H.G. Wells is writing War of the Worlds at this time. Yeah. Jules Verne, modern science fiction of this idea that creatures from other planets. Invasion of another worldly race. Yeah. Something that you can contextualize because obviously there's a lot of war trauma that was going on. Yeah. You know, all throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. The idea of a another race of human coming over and invading isn't that much of a foreign concept. No. And then just apply that to a spacefaring. But Joe Simonton sees something he understands. Somebody that this plumber wants water for food. The aliens want water and they give him some food for yeah. it. He's divorced, living alone in the shack. An intergalactic barter. Right. This dairy farmer, Bosag, mm-hmm. he sees an intergalactic cow-like thing. If we want to talk about the Magonian aspect and the ridiculousness mm-hmm. of it, it's the fact that these guys are seeing things that they might understand or they might but, have But also not understand to. at the same time. So it's kind of a paradox. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, I understand it looks like a cow in a spaceship, but also why am I seeing a cow right. in a spaceship? Why would I see a cow in a spaceship? To me, that's interesting how those things kind of connect. The sightings kind of connect to the people in a very individual way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it presents itself as something you can relate to, but not quite. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's still alien, even if it's not from an alien it's, planet. It's still high it's, strangeness. It's still non-human. 
Yeah, exactly. One year later, we get back to the nuts and bolts, and this is from Mellon, Wisconsin. This is a northwest town. While getting ready to settle in, 15-year-old Jane Baker spotted an unexpected bright light down the road in front of the Baker's home at 9 p.m. at night. Phil, the patriarch of the family, walked out in a stocking feet to see what was emitting the light. Now, it's not uncommon to see bright lights on a evening in a Wisconsin countryside. A well-known recreation is called shining or spotlighting deer. Right. Some boys pissed up shining spotlights into people's farm fields trying to see deer at 9 o'clock at night. That's right. not too out of the ordinary. Nope. But this was no farm boy in a pickup truck. What Phil saw was truly astonishing. He grabbed a coat and more appropriate footwear, and he walked out and saw a 12-foot in diameter silvery disc flashing green and red alternating lights along with a yellowish-white glow emanating from its hatch. Baker attempted to walk closer, but his timid daughter warned him to stay back. Now, a rhythmic metallic sound started from the inside of the craft. The metal-on-metal sound was characterized as banging or pounding. Baker concluded it seemed like it was an effort to repair something inside the object. An Ashland County undersheriff, George Ree, was called, but as soon as he picked up the phone, a loud boom was heard outside. The craft was gone. The total time on the ground was approximately 10 minutes. So that is a long encounter from what we consider fleeting UFO. Oh, yeah. I think if you see a UFO sighting, if it lasts for 30 seconds, to me, that's an amazing sighting. This claim that was almost 10 minutes. That's enough time to make friends. That's enough time to get some pancakes. Yeah, absolutely. There was no intergalactic barter, unfortunately. So what did Baker witness? Was it an alien craft coming for a pit stop and a wedge adjustment? (laughs) Or was it a military black ops project that needed a tweak or two? We're not sure what to make of that. There's actually a YouTube video circulating around where they interviewed Chain Baker about the sighting. So I'll uh, throw the show notes. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Now, Jeff, remember how we were talking about Wisconsin's great place for paranormal? Mm -hmm. It's so good for paranormal that we have three different UFO capitals. And so I just want to talk a little bit about Elmwood, which has a UFO days, D-A-C-E, every year based on some sightings there going back to 1976. So Elmwood is the first of Wisconsin's UFO capitals we'll talk about. The Daily Tribune in Wisconsin Rapids. Mm -hmm. My hometown. 26th of May, 1976. Law officer, 30 years, sees second UFO. Elmwood, Wisconsin. George Wheeler, a police officer in this small Pierce County community who says he used to think that unidentified flying objects were figments of others' imaginations, recently reported seeing his second UFO in slightly more than a year. I don't know what I saw, he said, but all I know is that I don't want that experience repeated ever again. Now, he says that he's not only a believer in UFOs, but he thinks the occupants of such craft are out to kill us. Wheeler, a veteran of 30 years in law enforcement work, said he made his latest sighting late in the evening of April 22nd when he went out to the area of a quarry just south of Elmwood to investigate what he thought was a fire. He said he found a flaming orange object about 250 feet across and as large as a two-story building hovering above the ground. He said he could see shadowy figures inside. Elmwood Police Chief Gene Helmer said Wheeler's police radio went dead as he was describing the object and Wheeler was found semi-conscious in his squad car a short time later. The car, which had been working well, was found to have burned out spark plugs and points. Three area residents reported that their television sets went off for about 10 minutes about the time Wheeler said he saw the UFO. Wheeler said he had been struck by a bluish-white light which came from the craft. He developed severe headaches for several days and was hospitalized in Menominee and Eau Claire for tests. Helmer said he had never seen Wheeler as shaken as he was the night of the sighting. George saw something, all right, or he never would have shut off the squad car engine nor keep the lights off, except under extreme circumstances, Helmer said. The police officer was not the only person to see a UFO in the area that night. Another was Paul Fredrickson, administrator of a nursing home where Helmer works part-time. He lives near the field where Wheeler was found and was notified of the officer's sighting by a nurse after a call was placed to the home in an effort to locate the chief. I got up and looked out the window and saw this flaming orange object in the sky, Fredrickson said. Wheeler's first sighting of a UFO occurred April 7, 1975, when he initially thought he saw a huge plane on fire heading toward the ground north of Elmwood. What I think is interesting about the George Wheeler story is that he thinks they're out to get him. Yeah. Like they struck him with a light, almost like what happened to Travis Walton. Mm. 
yeah. a couple of years before in Arizona. Mm-hmm. They see the object and then it fires something at Travis Walton. Yeah, it's almost like an EMP, how the patrol car, all the electrical system was burnt out and then residents reported their TVs going out. So it seems like yeah. some kind of electrical weapon almost. Something was going on in Elmwood. Here we go to the Winona, Minnesota Daily News, 26th of May, 1976. Talks more about his first sighting. Uh, the article is called Suddenly the Chief Believes. Hmm. <laughs> it's even that. But they talk about his first sighting, and it says, Wheeler's first sighting of a UFO occurred April 7, 1975. That's just about one year before, when he initially thought he saw a huge plane on fire heading toward the ground north of Elmwood. He also described that object as flaming orange and said it was about the size of a football field. That's, I mean, that's like a mothership. That's yeah, huge. he said the, the initial one was what? About 250 and two stories high. Maybe he saw two of the similar craft. Yeah. Wheeler said he detected a hose dangling from this latest UFO he saw, and he noted that both sightings were near a 69,000-volt power line located in the area. He speculated that the craft might possibly be using the vicinity as a recharging site. You know, obviously now he's yeah. just making stuff. You know, he's, he's drawing conclusions. Figure out. But, uh, we all know. know that UFOs use inductive charging like our cell phones. <laughs> exactly. Throw right. this one out. They don't need a hose. They probably had wireless charging if they have advanced exactly. technology. He's looking for something to try to figure it out. Yeah. And he's scared because obviously they're coming for him. <laughs> right? Yeah. This character, everybody believes him. The chief believes him. He's knocked out. They find him unconscious in a field. I don't know that I would have a big festival celebrating it. Yeah. Tempting fate there, considering they're out to get him. Right. George is gone now, but the UFO days in Elmwood continues. And it's a Wisconsin thing to take something like a UFO event. Like a UFO attack. And just throw a party. Us Wisconsinites will find any reason to party. As we move on the 70s, people are into alternative religions. The New Age movement comes about going to the Fox Valley now. Mm -hmm. Appleton, in the late 1970s, has its own UFO education center. This is from Hakan Blomquist's blog about UFOs. A woman named Charlotte Blob. She became interested in UFOs when she was employed as a ground observer for the U.S. Air Force in 1952. She is one of those ground observers, just like Coral Arensen was. And she had seen several UFOs when she was 16 years old, and then this got her into it. Later, she meets George Adamski, who we also mentioned before, that J. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée thought he was kind of a crazy man. In fact, in that same book we were talking about, The Edge of Reality, J. Allen Hynek talks about meeting George Adamski, and he's trying to talk to him about various, like how he took pictures of UFOs and the equipment and things like that and then get into the science of it. And George Adamski's just trying to sell him a UFO picture. So George Adamski and the Venusians and the Space Brothers are not super well-respected, I guess, in the scientific UFO community, but it's still something really popular in the 1950s. So Charlotte Blob becomes George Adamski's secretary in 1964. He dies in 1965, but she continues on her own doing UFO research. She talks about that she has personal meetings with space people living among us on Earth. In the Daily Times Advocate, December 23rd, 1973, Charlotte told of one such contact. She was lecturing on UFOs once in a home in a remote section of Wisconsin, and only the scientists and teachers invited were given the address. As it got underway, there was a knock on the door, and two young men with golden suntans that you just don't get in a Wisconsin winter, she said, asked to come in. Believing that they were students told about the meeting by one of the professors, she let them in, and only after considerable conversation, which they carried on in an unusual accent and a sing-song tone, and after the intensity with which they followed each speaker and the information he contributed, did she begin to believe that they might be visitors from a ship? She's going around lecturing on UFOs, space people, and their cosmic philosophy. So then she decides to found this new organization based on George Adamski's original research, and it's called the UFO Education Center. It's originally based in Valley Center, California, but they have a Midwest headquarters in Appleton, Wisconsin. All right. You know, that's headed by Miss Catherine Reed in Appleton. During the... 1976 election. Jimmy Carter is running for president versus Gerald Ford, who we already talked about Gerald Ford. He was trying to get a congressional hearing on those 1966 Michigan UFO sightings. Jimmy Carter is running against Gerald Ford, and he stops in Appleton, Wisconsin. It's the morning of March 31st, 1976. There's a news conference at the airport, and Charlotte's 
partner in the UFO Center. His name is Thomas Hyman, and he's the associate director of the UFO Education Center in Appleton, Wisconsin. He asked Jimmy Carter a question. He said, as president, would you air what, quote, what's behind closed doors, unquote, today in regards to UFOs? Jimmy Carter responds, I don't know what to make of it. However, some of the sightings have been witnessed by 20 to 25 people, law enforcement officers, and everyone in the cockpit of a major airplane and so forth. But I can't tell you what to make of it. If I knew, I'd be the only one in the world who does. But yes, I would make these kinds of data available to the public as president to help resolve the mystery about it. Hyman follows up, on a public basis? Carter, yes, on a public basis. Following the news conference, Jimmy Carter spoke with the questioner, Thomas H. Hyman, and said Hyman told him of the extensive films and evidence held by the UFO Center. Hmm. Right. Carter thanks Hyman for the offer to review the evidence, and he says, quote, a meeting could be arranged sometime after the election, unquote, when he could meet with the group and review the material they had. The UFO Education Center might be a silly kind of place. However, they did force Jimmy Carter to talk about disclosure all the way in 1976. Now, Jimmy Carter did have a UFO experience on mm -hmm. his own that he revealed. But the fact is, they got him talking about disclosure on the campaign trail in 1976. So the UFO Education Center can't be that bad. Does the UFO Center still exist? It does not exist, but the George Damsky Foundation and the stuff that he founded is still around. Okay, so the Appleton locations. Is, so you can't just go to Appleton and... Get educated up on UFOs? You can't Get your see... degree in ufology? <laughs> right, you can't see the stuff that they promised to show Jimmy Carter back in 1976, unfortunately, because otherwise I'd say we should have a field trip. Definitely a road trip. Right, get there right now. <laughs> See, Wisconsin's just got all this crazy stuff. When Jimmy Carter's asked about the closure, it's in Wisconsin. Jalen Hunnick comes to Wisconsin. MUFON starts in Wisconsin. It's exciting to me to see, like, how we connect to so many of these great stories. In 1987, there's another great story as we get to the next UFO capital of Wisconsin, and that is in good old Belleville. Belleville, Dane County. Not that far away from where we are right now. This is from the Chicago Tribune, July 9th, 1987. UFO sighting in Wisconsin. UFOs light up skies, but only questions are left hovering. This is by Rogers Worthington. <laughs> Rogers Worthington. That's a great is a, name. That's a great name for a reporter. Police officer Glenn Kasmer was on night patrol January 16th when he reported seeing a cluster of lights in the sky. He saw them earlier and ignored them, he said, because the area is on a flight path. But hours later, when he looked again, Kasmer was startled. It's not moving, he recalled later. Kasmer picked up Jeff Furseth, his partner, and drove to a bluff southwest of town. What they said they saw there, a mile or two south and a thousand feet or so up, were flashing red, blue and white lights arranged horizontally. The cluster was motionless and the lights were intense, more like spotlights than aircraft running lights. There was no sound. It was too dark to discern a shape. Cosmer and Furseth were joined by a Dane County Sheriff's deputy who reported seeing the same thing. Soon afterward came a sheriff's deputy from nearby Greene County who also reported seeing the lights. Eventually, the lights moved southwest, picking up speed until they disappeared. This was the first of a number of reports this year of strange lights, objects, and doing in the sky near Belleville, a bedroom community of 1,300 south of Madison. Other reports followed on March 6th. Several people described cigar-shaped objects in the late afternoon sky. There were other reports of the same sighting, and there were reports of other sightings. All in all, more than a dozen people in Belleville and nearby New Glarus, a tourist town and also maker of great beer, Mm -hmm. reported seeing strange things in the sky from January to April. It seemed like they were all describing the same thing, red lights on the left and blue lights on the right, said Michael Burke, editor of the New Glarus Post. Unlike more skeptical times in past years, those reporting such things in present-day Belleville have not become the object of town jokes. Of course, though, Cosmar has been ribbed by his fellow officers. One woman's children bought her a Belleville Home of the UFOs t-shirt, a sellout, at Belleville's Frenchtown Spirits Liquor Store was Belleville UFO. But UFO spotters in Belleville generally are considered reasonable and serious folk. Cosmar is respected as a local officer. And all these reports prompted an investigation by the Chicago-based Center for UFO Studies that J. Allen Hynek founded after he left Project Blue Book. Mm -hmm. But since none of the sightings was a close encounter, the kind ufologists get excited about, the center sent its Milwaukee investigator, a Donald Schmidt, and so Don Schmidt was the investigator on the Belleville sightings in 1987. And we're going to talk more about Don in just a few minutes because he is a Wisconsin-based investigator that worked at the Center for UFO Studies with J. Allen Hynek. Yep. He also features in our 
Wisconsin connection to UFOs. Now, the next place you want to go to in the UFO capital is Belleville for their UFO day and mm. enjoy the parade. And yeah, that's, uh, that's usually around Halloween every year. And have a beer at Schwagler's Town Lanes or <laughs> down there and have a good <laughs> yeah. time. The third UFO capital is considered Dundee, Wisconsin. Now, this is a, a town not too far from Lake Michigan and associated closely with the Lake Michigan Triangle. Oh, so ooh. on the edge of the Kettle Moraine Forest in the small village of Dundee lies the unofficial UFO capital of the world. Now, according to Bill Benson, it started way back in 1947. Again, that comes up. There was a big crop circle at the Ludwig Farm in Jersey Flats. Mm-hmm. So that was a an interview I believe with the Milwaukee Journal with Bill Benson. He is the owner of Benson's Hideaway on Long Lake near Dundee. Benson's Hideaway on Long Lake was once a mecca for UFO enthusiasts. The bar and restaurant was situated on the edge of Long Lake, which many contend is an area of high strangeness. In 1985, multiple witnesses came forward after seeing a circular object hovering above a farm field, startling a herd of cows. Ah. Now, after the incident garnered attention, Benson and his friend Bob, a.k.a. UFO Bob, <laughs> Sweet, decided, I love UFO Bob. decided to start the first ever UFO Days, D-A-Z-E, again. But the activity didn't end there. In 1995, a crop circle was discovered near Long Lake. In 98, Benson, along with five others, witnessed a large orange ball hovering over Dundee Mountain, a nearby mountain or hill in that area. So as they observed the orb, four fighter jets flew after the aerial apparition. Now, many UFO enthusiasts contend that Dundee Mountain may be home to a secret UFO base. Awesome. But Long Lake isn't just home of the aerial phenomenon. Benson also reported that two campers in 1989 were out on the lake when a giant black and yellow creature emerged from the water. Oh, man. It was approximated at 25 feet long with a head like a football. It was a Green Bay Packers right nearby. <laughs> right, I was going to say. Yes. It's a super Packer. Yeah, it should have been, instead of black and yellow, it should have been Obviously. green and gold, right? Right. Yeah, so the creature was given the nickname Long Neck of Long Lake. Now, over the years, many reports have trickled in on the eerie snake-like creature roaming Long Lake and breaking the placid waters. I actually read about this one in Chad Lewis's Lake Monsters book, Lake oh, Monsters nice. of Wisconsin. So the UFO Days event ran for 33 years until Bill's passing in 2021. The final UFO days was in 2022. It was the unofficial last event, and it was a celebration of Benson's life. It's awesome that he was able to bring people to come to Long Lake. To, you know. Yeah, and it was pretty garish and gaudy from the pictures I've seen. I never got to, to visit the hideaway. Unfortunately, it is closed permanently after Bill's passing. Nobody's really carrying the torch forward, at least as of right now. So Benson's hideaway, as of the time of recording, Unfortunately, shuttered. So Dundee is kind of retiring as a UFO capital. Of I think Wisconsin. it'll still be the UFO capital. We just won't have the awesome festival there. Okay. Of the stories that have the UFO capitals, we take Elmwood, Belleville, and Dundee. Dundee's the only one with an actual alien creature. That's true, yeah. So, I mean, they do have the advantage of having a 25 foot long. Yeah, you got a, a, black a lake monster. Beast. Could be Transpermia from our Space Brethren. Possibly. Right? They're breeding in our lakes in Wisconsin. That's right. Just like in our Devil's Lake episode, we talked about the Chicago... The Lovecraftian Lovecraftian cult. sex magic cult that people That's used right. to do in Devil's Lake. So maybe the aliens now are doing that in Long Lake. When we get to the mid-90s, it's X-Files time. Yeah. So X-Files, I think the first season dropped, what, 1993? September 1993. 30 years since it started in 2023 here. And so X-Files 93, 1994, though, is a movie on Showtime about Roswell. It stars Kyle MacLachlan from Twin Peaks and Dune, and it's Martin Sheen from The Dead Zone and The West Wing. The Roswell film is based on the book written by Don Schmidt, who we just had talked about. Mm-hmm. His partner, Kevin Randall, they wrote a book on Roswell, and that's eventually what gets adapted into the movie made on Showtime, which is where a lot of people heard about Roswell for the first time. Aliens start entering, really entering the pop culture consciousness again in the 1990s, thanks to X-Files and then this Roswell movie. 1997, I'm an associate entertainment editor here in Madison, University of Wisconsin, at the Badger Herald. Don Schmidt was coming to town. 
and I saw that, and I wanted to do a uh, interview with him. So this is from my uh, story in the Badger Herald, 1997. Uh, believe what you want. The truth is out there. Don Schmidt, co-director of the J. Allen Hunnick Center for UFO Research, has been studying aerial phenomena since the 1970s. But he's a Wisconsin native. UFOs first sparked his interest in the late 60s when this state had a string of sightings. And we were just talking about those sightings. As his fascination grew, he began traveling to the sites where UFOs had been spotted and soon began to work for renowned researcher Dr. J. Allen Hynek, a high-ranking officer in the Air Force's famous UFO research project, Blue Book, claiming that all the high-profile cases were going to a different, unknown organization in the military and not Blue Book, Hynek left the Air Force and began his own center for UFO research. In 1986, Schmidt went to New Mexico to investigate the now-famous supposed flying saucer crash at Roswell in 1947. Confident that he would spend a weekend there, debunk it, and leave, he was shocked by what he found. It looked like we finally had something we could take to Washington, D.C., he said. We have got nearly 550 witness testimonials. People have seen everything from the debris to the actual alien bodies. Most of the witnesses were threatened with the death of their families if they ever talked about the incident. They even threatened the announcer of the local radio station. Right after World War II, people had no reason to mistrust the government, yet the military took extreme measures to make sure people wouldn't discuss this. Schmidt took the case to New Mexico Congressman Stephen Schiff, and in early 1994, Congressman Schiff launched his own investigation into Roswell. The current Hollywood love affair with UFOs, beginning in 1994 with the Showtime movie Roswell based on his book, neither encourages or discourages him. He says, Hollywood always exploits a great theme. My book is recommended on the Independence Day website. We were offered appearances on the X-Files, but I've never tried to capitalize on Roswell and I've never seen any money from it. When questioned about 1995's controversial alien autopsy video. Now, you get, you remember that, that's right? A, that's a throwback. Yes, I do remember that. Jonathan Frakes hosted it. Jonathan Frakes was Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. He hosts like a special where they debuted the alien autopsy video. When questioned about 1995's controversial alien autopsy video, he says he has problems buying it. The decontamination uniforms are all wrong, and no one has ever seen the actual film stock. The film they gave to Kodak to analyze was merely the blank part of the film before the actual footage. People are making millions on it. It's supported in Europe, but if it's true, they should release the actual film stock for analysis. Yeah. I went to a barbecue at somebody's house in Milwaukee in 1996 where he was like the featured speaker. Mm -hmm. He was a little more upbeat at that barbecue than he yeah. was when I interviewed him for this about the alien autopsy footage. He was a little more like, well, it might be a thing. And then eventually Don is part of the presentation of the UFO of the, the Roswell slides in 2016 mm -hmm. that Jaime Musan, who just brought the, the alien bodies or whatever to the Mexican Congress, yep. that was his pay-per-view event. And, and, you know, Don was part of that. And I interviewed him right before. He, and he said, like, the stuff looks good. And then when they put the Roswell slides out, they... Within 12 minutes, somebody on Reddit found a picture where they came from, and the alien body was like a, a child of a mummy from Peru. So the internet sleeves tore it apart. And just looking back at the alien autopsy footage that dropped in the mid-90s, if you watch it today, it just looks preposterous. I remember watching it for the first time, probably 1997. Finally, somebody like passed around a, a VHS tape of it, yeah. popped it in, and we were just like, this is, this is ridiculous. I but admit it was I, entertaining. I was pretty excited about it when I saw it. Yeah. I was like, oh man, what if this is real? Yeah. <laughs> when Jonathan Frakes is like, upcoming alien autopsy. Yeah. It's a very cheesy thing. And while Don Schmidt was part of the Roswell slides and everything, uh, the amount of work he's put into the Roswell case and different cases and collecting witness statements and all those kind of things, he really has put in the groundwork for all those kind of things. And this is a Racine. Wisconsin-based investigator mm. that wrote the book on Roswell that became a movie. So just more connections that it's Wisconsin guys that bring it home. Yeah, beer, cheese, and UFOs. Right. and uh, That sounds like I need to make a T-shirt. It, it sounds like a T-shirt I would buy. Even though I'll make fun of Don for the Roswell slides, I respect his work very much, and I think a lot of the work he's done with collecting the stories and the interviews and trying to get all the people before they died and everything mm -hmm. uh, is tremendous. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, you know, I don't know if Jaime pulled one over on him with the slides. I've got a theory about some of these UFO guys when they get involved with these kind of things is that they don't think anybody's going to believe them anyway. Mm -hmm. So you do these kind of things to make some money to go back and find the smoking gun. You're like, nobody's going to buy this until we have a body anyway. Yeah. So I need to fund whatever way I can to get back there and find the evidence that is irrefutable. 
if you do all this, you get all this witness research and you talk to all these people on deathbed confessions and everything. Mm. And they say like, this is the truth. This is what happened. You know, now I can tell you because I'm not afraid for my life or my family. They go through all that and they get all these research and then people are still like, you're full of it. I don't mm. believe it. And they collect all this research. Then you just, to me, it's like they probably just want to make enough money so they can go back and get the smoking gun. They believe it's out there. Yeah. But they need the funding to get there. And sometimes you have to align yourself with, I mean, this sucks. But once you find the actual thing that nobody can disprove, then it won't matter who you hung out with before. That's my theory. I don't know if it's true, but yeah. that's just me speaking yeah, as but a researcher. It's just, you know, it, it layers the credibility with bringing the, the aliens to the Mexican Congress and being like, yeah, this just looks like withered up paper mache. Right, terrible. It just reflects poorly on him if he's trying to be a serious. Right. And being associated with that Roswell Slides event didn't help anybody. Exactly. But I felt like I needed to put a disclaimer on that because I think Don's great and I enjoyed interviewing. I've interviewed him several times and he's got great evidence and he's got great skills and interviews and stuff like that. But then every once in a while, he'll show up at a dud and you're like, ugh. Yeah. But that's the, the kind of the mid-90s. That's our connection. Wisconsin does have a connection to the big UFO wave of the 1990s. We were there for Roswell. As we hit in the 2000s, it seems like the 2000s in Wisconsin, we had the return of a older kind of UFO event in Mayville, right? On the morning of July 4th, 2003, retiree Arthur Rentala was sipping his morning coffee and watching as crop circles formed right before his eyes in a field across the street in Mayville, Wisconsin. Mm. He saw no visible UFO no beams of light, nothing to indicate the presence of anything that could cause it. So magically crafting these crop circles in the field across from where he was sipping his morning coffee. Right. Now, it was an unprecedented case. The first known eyewitness to the formation of a crop circle, MUFON, and paranormal investigators like Chad Lewis and Mike's sister, Allison Jornlin, actually met within that crop circle. <laughs> that's great. They and bumped into each other the yeah, crop they, circle. That's where the friendship started. And even the U.S. military came out to investigate these crop circles right there in Mayville. You know, in a modern crop circle in Wisconsin and also no lights, no UFO sightings, no Just anything. like a spontaneous production of a crop circle. It's just like created out of nowhere. There's aerial overhead shots of it. And compared to some I've seen, it's less... Fancy. significant or spectacular doesn't have, look like it has some kind of secret code it's i think it's just like two circles connected by a line but for it to happen in mayville wisconsin pretty sweet now mike have you ever seen a ufo one time in puerto rico i saw something that i thought might be uh unidentified flying object in the clouds like there was a cloud that just wasn't the same as the others okay i mean that might be caribbean weather but that was probably the closest thing I would say to have seen an unidentified flying object was there was something that just was, I was also, maybe it was in my head because I was, there's an extraterrestrial highway in Puerto Rico. And so like we were driving on the extraterrestrial highway. <laughs> so I could have had it in my head. Yeah. But it just, it was a cloud that just was not like any of the other clouds. Yeah, it looked like a particular like, cloud or one of the. It was an uncanny valley cloud. Okay. Well, all the rest of the clouds were fine. And that one, I was like. It just stood out and you're like, that, okay. That's really weird. Yeah. So that's the closest thing I think to a UFO. The same year as the, well, actually it was a year after the Mayville crop circles. Yeah. And it was like a Tuesday night in early February. So it was cold. Right. And I pulled out of my parents' back driveway and I looked up over at the tree line and I saw three glowing orbs. They were kind of an amberish red color. Okay. And they were just above the tree line. And I looked at it and I was like, what is that? And as soon as I saw it it disappeared and then it reappeared just south southwest of where i saw it originally and then it inexplicably vanished so i got to my friend's place i was like guys you will never believe what i just saw and it right. was my friend and his dad sitting in the living room and i told them about it and they were just like okay jeff whatever we don't believe you they just kind of dismissed it like okay what are you Not gonna do about up. it right so that was a tuesday and the week passed, I didn't see my friends again until the weekend. And then my other friend from that group, he's like, hey, Jeff, did I tell you that I saw a UFO the other night? And I said, okay, hold the phone, Eric. I go, Guy and Steve, do you remember on Tuesday night when I came over and I told you? Okay, Eric, go with your story. So Eric, he goes ahead and he tells the exact same story, but two nights later. Mine was a Tuesday. 
His happened on a Thursday. Interesting. And we kind of had like simpatico on that. And yeah. Ever since, we'll always bring it up every once in a while and be like, hey, remember that UFO we saw? Right. And we both saw a UFO. Wasn't that awesome? I was wise enough to log it on UFO Wisconsin. Oh, great. So it's still out there. And that's a site that Noah Voss runs. Yeah. It is very web 1.0. I'm not sure if people still submit their UFO sightings to it, but the site is still very active. Yeah. It is out there for posterity. <laughs> <laughs> and from the old days when it was like from the weird, old days, yeah. weird Wisconsin, the W files, you know, Wisconsin w, w files and UFO Wisconsin were, were definitely. And then I think Chad Lewis had a bulletin board back then too, yeah. to log all this. Those was the good old days before Facebook and Instagram where we can start groups. You'd have to go onto an actual bulletin board service. Right. Po and, and post, post your stuff. So those were the good old days. It's still out there. So check out UFO Wisconsin. And then Noah also produced a book called UFO Wisconsin, a progress report yeah. where he goes from early days of the, the balloon sightings to present day to whenever that book was published in 2000. Uh, we should have just read his book instead of doing our own research. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's all it out faster. there. Well, that's great. What I really like about that is your friend sees the same thing. Yeah. That to me, now that's a story. Like that's the kind of thing, an uncanny thing, same area, two people unrelated, see the same thing. Two now, nights apart, too. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, we just saw the same phenomenon. We saw the same phenomenon separated by two days. So, sure, it might have been a real thing. It might have been a plane. It might have been a terrestrial object, even mm -hmm. if you think it's some kind of secret military craft or something flying around that people are seeing or a spy. Yeah, you know, yeah or... this was long before the days of drones. Could these have been military flares? Just southwest of Wisconsin Rapids is the Hardwood Bombing Range in Babcock. Would it have been some kind of military activity dropping like military flares? Ah. It seemed closer to me than Babcock's quite a ways away, but I can't rule it out. But that's why it's unidentified, at least to me. But the fact that somebody else saw it, that's the yes. thing. Like then it's not a trick in the eye then it's not in your head. Then it's like somebody else saw the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Now it's something. Yep. And I actually had the foresight to say, hey, Eric, stop. Okay. Before you poisoned the and well. Before I poisoned the well. And I said, Stephen Guy, remember when I came over here and told you this? Okay, go ahead, Eric. You tell yours. And the stories match. So that was kind of like confirmation. And then also, the nice thing about UFO Wisconsin is they catalog their reports by year and yeah. date and also county. So I could go through everything from 2000 to present by Wood County and see if anybody else saw that. And I think there was a couple of other reports that shared that same type of phenomenon. So I'm not sure what to make of it. So in 2004, Rapids had its own little UFO wave. Yes. And you were part of it. I was part of it. That's amazing. Yeah. And I had the, the foresight to be like, okay, I need to document this somewhere for posterity. And I went on there. But how many people have these experiences and they don't have anybody to tell? Right. Sometimes it's such a weird thing that happens to you that you don't process it. Well, like your personal encounter too, you're already discounting it right. because you're like, well, I don't know. Was I just primed because I was on the extra terrestrial <laughs> highway? on the UFO highway in Puerto Rico. Yeah, in beautiful island. You know, my, you had one too many Mai Tais. Right. Like, yeah, I know that there were some pina coladas pina that day. Coladas, Maybe not in the yeah. early day, but there was that evening. Yeah. So who knows? And that's, that's the one thing about supernatural encounters, at least with me, whenever something happens, you know, I don't fully embrace what just happened, I always look for like explanations of what yeah. it might be. And I think, and then sometimes you discount it before you even get to the weird stuff. Yeah. That's a good one, Jeff. I thank you for sharing that. We're going to make fun of you for it later. I think <laughs> it's a great story. Okay. 2023, UFOs are back in the news. It's like the year of the UFO, 2023. Completely is. But now they're not called unidentified flying objects. Yes. They're unidentified aerial phenomena. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. And I refuse to, right, to I, use the government-issued terminology for this phenomenon. Because I agree. this has been very much a citizen movement, UFOs, all of the research. And then the government comes along and we're going to call them unidentified aerial phenomenon. Right, and it's just case. like, shut up. They're UFOs. Get on with it. So, okay, new thing came out, a whistleblower named David Grutch said he was working for the Air Force, and they said that you know people had told them that we had non-extraterrestrial craft that had crashed and, and the people had alien bodies. He hadn't seen them, but he testifies before Congress, this in June. Now, UAPs are in the news. What's Wisconsin's connection to this? It's like, how is Wisconsin involved? 
This is from Wisconsin Public Radio, Monday, July 31st, 2023. After UFO hearing, Wisconsin Representative Glenn Grothman calls for declassifying military documents. The Wisconsin congressman who chaired a high-profile committee hearing on UFOs says the military should be required to release classified information after a designated period. All right. Now we're back. So what's Wisconsin's connection? A Wisconsin congressman was the chairman of the UAP committee. Sounds like a modern-day shift from New Mexico. Correct. Except this time it's U.S. Representative Glenn Grothman, Republican from Glenn Beulah. He chaired last week's House hearing on Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, or UAPs, at which a former intelligence official claimed the U.S. government was concealing evidence of alien life. David Grutch, a former Air Force intelligence officer, told Congress he had learned of a multi-decade UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program. Grutch, who's been characterized as a whistleblower, did not offer evidence for his claims and declined to answer some questions from committee members, saying it would involve classified material. The hearing was fodder for wild speculation online, though officials with NASA and the Pentagon have said they do not have evidence of extraterrestrial materials, let alone beings. Appearing Friday on WPR's Central Time, Grothman acknowledged that the hearing had by far the most public interest of any he's seen recently. And he said there's a legitimate public interest in understanding what the government knows about UAPs that have been spotted. Is it something that other nations have developed that we are nowhere near developing? We ought to know that. Is it something from outer space and there are other people monitoring us? Well, we ought to know that. Grothman said he wants to see a little more transparency from the military on the matter. All right, Wisconsin congressman calling for, for disclosure. This is from CBS 58 in Milwaukee. Hearing shine spotlight, but Wisconsin officials are skeptics. This is talking about the committee hearing Glenn Grothman was chairing. In one exchange that raised eyebrows, former intelligence officer David Grutch said the military had recovered non-human biologics from one UAP. He was maybe, I'll say it bluntly, the least credible of the witnesses, Grothman said. Grothman said he was skeptical all around of the idea that the military was successfully suppressing proof of alien life forms visiting Earth. I think it'd be hard to think that thing is secret, right, he said? If somebody really did come across a crashed spacecraft and they found people in it, I would think almost immediately dozens, if not hundreds of people in the military would know about it. At a public appearance Friday in Madison, Governor Tony Evers only said no when asked if he believed aliens had visited Earth. Grothman said he found the other witnesses' descriptions of personal encounters with UAPs, like Jeff, to be more credible given their careers as military pilots, but added he wasn't ready to issue any subpoenas to compel officials to testify on the subject. I'd rather not subpoena people right away, Grothman said. We'll see what we found out at the closed-door meetings. Grothman added he would like the Pentagon to declassify its older UAP-related documents. It's hard to imagine that 20 or 25 years ago, what happened then, they can't release. And that would be interesting to see. I agree. So what happens next? Well, Grothman's in on this, too. So our Wisconsin congressman is part of the UFO search that the government's doing. He's part of the UAP shenanigans. Regular frickin' Fox Mulder. Right. Newsweek, August 9th, 2023. What happens next? Some of the indications came from the hearing itself. Ranking member Representative Robert Garcia, a California Democrat, asked that these discussions and these hearings continue. Clearly, there's a lot of information that we don't know, but it's also clear that we have to continue our investigation and accountability on asking the right questions and ensuring they're part of the public record, Garcia said. Chair Representative Glenn Grothman, a Republican from Wisconsin, added that he assumed some legislation will come out of this. Members of the committee were given five days after the hearing to submit any further questions to witnesses. Newsweek has contacted a media representative for the subcommittees to ask if there had been any inquiries or responses. As Congress began its five-week recess in August, committee members won't reconvene until at least September. Newsweek understands the Committee on Oversight and Accountability has no updates on future investigations. However, a number of members have spoken since the hearing. Grothman, speaking to Wisconsin Public Radio, said that he expected to receive a confidential briefing from witnesses at the hearing sometime in the next month and a half and called for legislation that would allow for the release of historical documents. I think there should be legislation to say that they should release these files, Grothman said, adding the release of the information would help illuminate the credibility of claims. The chair also suggested establishing some permanent sort of agency as a depository for people who claim to have seen UAPs. So that would be a federal UFO Wisconsin, or a federal MUFON office, or APRO, would be finally the realm of the government, would be to take these people's reports and hopefully take them seriously and investigate. So an open Project Blue Book. Right, exactly. From 
the the first reports in 1897 to the UFO, the flying saucer flap in 1947, to the famous swamp gas sightings in the 1960s. I mean, MUFON, the people that wrote the Roswell movie, Space Pancakes, to Wisconsin, it's got UFOs up the... When most people think UFOs, they think Nevada, Rachel, Nevada, Area 51. They think Roswell, New Mexico, and maybe they think Hangar 18 in Ohio. Right. But what they should be thinking is space pancakes. Space pancakes from Wisconsin with a flying Bosak cow humanoid. <laughs> right. Who do you think's buttering those pancakes? Is that, that's is right. That, is that cow? Now that's the problem. That's why the pancakes were so bad, because they weren't made with Wisconsin dairy. Right. If Bosak was there, it could have made Joe Simonton's meal a whole lot better. That's right. That's the 101 on UFOs in Wisconsin. And we hope you guys had a great time listening to this episode of Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Right after we wrapped recording of this episode, I knew almost immediately we forgot something. I've made a huge mistake. I immediately texted Mike and said, we forgot to talk about Ray Palmer and the Shaver mystery. Dean is going to lose his shit. So to make up for that, I got Dean Bertram on the line and I had one question for him. Who was Raymond A. Palmer? Raymond A. Palmer is one of the most significant figures in the history of both science fiction and UFO belief. And he's probably also the most under-recognized. Dean is a podcast host, filmmaker, and the host of Midwest Weird Fest. John Keel quipped in a title in a 14 Times article in 1982 that Palmer was the man who invented flying saucers. And while some people say that's hyperbole, it's kind of accurate. Dean has forgotten more about Ray Palmer than I'll ever know. So I'm going to let him tell us a little bit more about the man who invented flying saucers. To understand Palmer, though, I think we need to briefly go back to, I guess, his origin story. He was born in 1910 in Milwaukee, and he claimed later in his life to have an almost photographic memory even of childhood events, like even little childhood events, like when he was a baby, he remembered all kinds of things. But the most intriguing was he remembered his grandmother lifting him up to a window where he said, as a newborn baby, essentially, he could remember seeing Halley's Comet. Now, the problem with this story, which Palmer himself recognized in his autobiography, Martian Diary, is that Halley's Comet had already passed out of the sight of human vision by the time that he was born. But he insisted at the same time that he'd seen it. So there's this wonderful contradiction of Palmer remembering an event, yet also recognizing that it couldn't have been possible, but being able to almost ignore those contradictions and bring that event together as a genuine origin story. And so that says a lot about the way that Palmer throughout his life was able to use his incredible imagination, as well as his tenacity, which we'll get to in a minute, to promulgate stories and ideas and theories which really sparked the imagination of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of readers when he finally became an editor of magazines later in his life. But the other formative events of his life, which is important to understand, is when he was seven, he was playing in the streets of Milwaukee and he got his leg caught in the wheel of a truck. Some people say it's a beer truck. Some people say it was a milk truck. The story's kind of faded with time, but for whatever, the truck was a truck. And the driver took off without seeing this seven-year-old boy's leg in the spokes of his old school truck. And he heard this terrible screaming, stopped the truck, and the truck driver picked up Ray Palmer and found out, I think, from neighborhood children where Palmer lived and ran him home where his father was, and he said, I'm so sorry, I've injured your boy, we need to get him to a hospital. And the father, who didn't have a whole lot of money, was like, oh, he'll be fine, let's just lay him out on the couch. Now, that was the beginning of a long train of events, which would lead to Ray Palmer ultimately growing not a whole lot taller than four feet. Again, there's various, people say various heights, it's always under five, some say it was just on four. Certainly, the injury left him very small in stature, and he also was left with a hunchback. 
Now, it wasn't just the accident. There was a string of, you know, he wasn't treated soon enough. Then he had a botched surgery, and I think he got TB in his bones. So all these problems left him in terrible agony and as essentially convalescing for most of his childhood. But what he did, he read an awful lot of literature. And when Amazing Stories, the first real science fiction magazine, was published in 1928, Palmer saw that on the newsstands and bought it, and forever Palmer's life would be changed. He became one of the most active members in what then was uh, the beginning of a fandom. And he launched what is essentially the world's first fanzine with some friends, of a fanzine called The Comet. For whatever reason, his star continued to rise, probably because he was such a great writer and such a great editor and such a great publisher. When the magazine, which Hugo Gernsback, Amazing Stories, had founded, called Amazing Stories, which Hugo had founded in 1928, by about 1938, it had was failing. I think it was down to less than 25,000 circulation or something. And a publishing company called As If Davis acquired that magazine. And somebody recognizing Palmer's contribution, both as a science fiction writer, because he'd already been published in a number of the pulps by this time, as well as his ability to edit and organize various science fiction fandom groups and, and fanzines, pretty much appointed him out of the blue to edit this revamped magazine. Palmer bought his incredible imagination and his tenacity and his vision of that magazine and drove that magazine from failing the 25,000 circulation to by the early to mid 40s, he had up to 135,000. And this is where the story segues into probably its most important part. And that is Amazing Stories received a letter in 1943 which was essentially somebody, an individual called Richard Shaver, said he decoded an ancient language which predated all other languages called Mantong. And he wrote a letter listing how you could kind of see just by the letters in words their original meanings, very much like perhaps some people had done earlier with the idea of there being an Atlantean language predating every other language. Anyway, the editor who was reading it, one of um, one of Palmer's associate editors, he was reading it aloud to the office and joking about, oh, here's a letter from another crackpot, and he screwed it up and threw it in the trash. Now, Palmer, perhaps wanting to put this editor in his place or perhaps genuinely knowing a good story when he saw one, wandered over to the trash bin, fished the letter out, handed it back to Howard Brown, his associate editor, and said, I want you to run this in the next magazine. So Brown reluctantly did, and it appeared in the January 1944 letter column of Amazing Stories. And it started somewhat of a genuine, I suppose, furor and interest, this claim that there was this ancient language, and Palmer knew he was onto a good thing. Circulation rose, and he kept in communication with Richard Shaver, and Shaver sent him another manuscript titled The Warning to Future Man, which was about 10,000 words long. Palmer rewrote that magazine. It was essentially a kind of a history of a previous, I suppose, a pre-diluvial civilization that lived on the earth supposedly, you know, before the flood and before uh, cataclysm drove most of this ancient spacefaring civilization off this world. And the people they left behind, who were called Abanadero, either went into the caves and became the evil Abanadero, which we just called Dero, or went into the caves and became the good Abanadero that were called the Tero. And I suppose the people left on the surface ultimately became us mankind. Anyway, Palmer turned that into more than a, rather than just kind of a, a pseudo history thesis, he turned it into a science fiction action movie or action story rather called I Remember Lemuria, which was then ran in the March 1945 issue of Amazing. And the circulation just exploded. Went, Amazing went to 180,000. Palmer already got it up to 135,000 before that. And by the height of the Shaver mystery, it had reached about a quarter of a million, according to Ray Palmer. Now, the Shaver mystery was ran by Palmer as based on true experiences, which Richard Shaver said he had had in the caves or in the caverns with these ancient races who still lived beneath the surface of the earth with incredible mind control technology and the ability to beam thoughts into people's heads and the ability to torture people from afar, as well as sometimes kidnap humans and take them into the caves. They also had very advanced spacefaring technology, as well as ships, which essentially predated flying saucers. 
which later both Palmer and Shaver would say when Kenneth Arnold has his first sighting in, in June 24, 1947, that what he saw were ships from the caverns. So in the lead up to the very first flying saucer witness again, Kenneth Arnold, Palmer and Shaver had laid much of the groundwork for the idea of advanced spacefaring alien beings who abducted people and had all of this incredible technology. And Palmer had began introducing as well into the pages of what was initially a science fiction magazine, a whole lot of Fortean content. He himself would write and say, we expect to be visited by people from other worlds shortly. He would refer to the writings of Charles Fort regularly. He had a number of Fortians writing for him, including Vincent Gaddis, who it's significant to mention the June 1947 issue of Amazing Stories, which was on the newsstands when Kenneth Arnold had his first famous flying saucer encounter. Vincent Gaddis had written an article in that issue, which was also called the All Shaver Issue. Every single story and article in it had something to do with the Shaver mystery. But in Vincent Gaddis's article called Visitors from the Void, it essentially talked about historical flying saucer reports and encounters the month that the term flying saucers was coined, but had not yet been coined. So if Kenneth Arnold had picked up that issue off the newsstands, he already would have read much about how flying saucer belief would manifest in the years following his sighting. Now, Kenneth Arnold becomes part of the Shaver and Palmer story as well. Part of John Keel's thesis that Palmer was the man who invented flying saucers essentially says that Flying sources appeared to what would have been little more than a silly season kind of newspaper phenomenon, as big as it was. But it took somebody to continue to perpetuate that story and to continue beating the drum. And that person was Ray Palmer. So Ray Palmer, who I mentioned, both he and Shaver were not surprisingly very impressed when all of a sudden these strange things they'd been talking about seemed to appear in the skies of America. So Palmer reaches out to Kenneth Arnold and A, he buys his original story. So we get the most comprehensive version of Arnold's story written in the first issue of Fate magazine, which Ray Palmer launches with Curtis Fuller in 1948. And it's the cover story. And then he runs other stories from Arnold in the years to come. And Fate is essentially the first magazine which deals with the type of things which Palmer was already dealing with in some issues, his letter column, in other words, paranormal experiences from beyond. That became the hallmark of Fate magazine. He also employs Kenneth Arnold to go and investigate essentially the Proto-Roswell crash, which happened at, um, at Maury Island in Puget Sound in Washington State. So Palmer wanted to know more about it. So he employed Kenneth Arnold, who at that time was America's number one flying source of personality, to go and investigate that event. And that event leads to us acquiring more of what today is traditional UFO belief. So men in black, government cover-ups, you know, UFO crashes, all of this stuff first really is popularized by Ray Palmer and Kenneth Arnold in that account. After leaving Amazing Stories and launching Fate magazine, both Richard Shaver and Ray Palmer moved to Amherst, Wisconsin, where Palmer continues to publish not just Fate magazine, which he eventually hands over to Curtis Fuller to run entirely. He launches another magazine called Mystic, which also deals with these kind of issues. He then starts a magazine. He'd published several magazines throughout his life, but he starts the magazine called Flying Sources from Other Worlds and then eventually just Flying Sources. And that is the only newsstand long-running saucer magazine which runs, I think, up until the late 1960s. Like That was the main flying saucer magazine in this country and in the world. It was Ray Palmer. In those early days where flying sources perhaps hadn't achieved the the type of cultural ascendancy that they have today it was palmer who banged the drum the hardest and the longest and then the great irony is of course is his all but forgotten in history for example there are a number of ufo history books notably david jacobs the ufo controversy in america when jacobs wrote his phd dissertation back in the 70s it became the first and most important at that time ufo history which kind of laid the way for a lot of academics who followed and the ufo controversy in America, I think it mentions Ray Palmer in one foot 
footnote. He tended to get downplayed very quickly for some reason by people who perhaps wanted to take the phenomenon a little bit more seriously. Although in the early days, people, including Donald Menzel, the arch-skeptic, recognised that much of flying saucer law and much of the popularisation of it was because of Ray Palmer. And certainly Keel recognised that as well, writing a number of articles and journal articles and mentioning in a number of books the importance of Ray Palmer long before he even wrote that piece for 14 times in 1982. So we see Palmer's influence in the development of UFO belief, but also, I think, in the introduction of things that are becoming popular again now. Things which I suppose John Keel and Jacques Vallée, for example, pushed ideas that the sources might not be from other planets. I'm making a documentary. I unashamedly stole the title of Keel's article and the phrase he quipped, the man who invented flying saucers, because I frankly can't think of a better one for the feature documentary that I'm working on. And it's essentially about Ray Palmer and his influence on UFO belief and how he in many ways has been forgotten. And also, of course, it spends quite a bit of time talking about the Shaver mystery because Shaver and Palmer moved down the road from me. They're in, they're in a neighboring county, which is what kind of triggered my desire to make this film that I realized these people who were so important in the early days of UFO law essentially drifted into obscurity. And they drifted into obscurity in many ways, literally just one county over from where I am in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. You can find more about Dean's project, The Man Who Invented Flying Saucers, by going to theshavermystery.com. He also publishes a weekly radio show called Talking Weird on the Untold Radio Network. You can find that wherever podcasts are served. Every March, Dean hosts a film fest called Midwest Weird Fest in Eau Claire. You can find out more about the film fest at MidwestWeirdFest.com. Sad little one Doesn't want to feel alone She hates the trash that spawned her She hates her broken home she likes it when I say aliens Made homo sapiens She likes it when I talk Martians And the chariots of the gods The blood of the unearthly Better than the blood of the ugly Bread for more than just civility Bread for more than this burned out hole
The Wisconsin Legends Podcast is presented by American Ghost Walks, hosted by Mike Huberty and Jeff Finham, recorded at Sunspot Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, edited by Jeff Finham, audio engineer Mike Huberty, music by Sunspot and various artists. Find out more about the show, including show notes, at wisconsinlegendspodcast.com. Follow the guys at American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends on Instagram and Facebook. We'll see you next time.